Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Alexandra Marshall, who is the host of Curtain Call, a good sauce show exploring the leading personalities in the culture war. She writes on liberty, philosophy, and geopolitics. She's also an AI database designer for the retail industry and a contributor to multiple online journals. We'll be discussing themes she's been covering in articles for The Spectator, such as an amazing piece she just, just published called Digital Darkness, The Third Apocalypse. Just a quick reminder for podcast listeners to sign up to the email list, Telegram, Twitter, and all other media channels. Also consider leaving a one-time or monthly donation via Subscribestar, PayPal, or crypto. I've been freed of my day job and my only income is this podcast, so I appreciate all support. Uh, Alexandra, you're in Australia. How are things out there? Are you still in lockdown prison? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hail from Sydney, so I'm currently in a snap lockdown that was meant to last for two weeks, and we've just had an extension today, so we're not quite sure when we're going to be let free yet. Wow, I mean, that's incredible. Like, how, How's the daily situation, though? Like, you can go out of your house, you have to wear masks on the streets, um, and, you know, what are the restrictions like? Well, first of all, there's, there's a lot of talk internationally about Australia. We have two very different cities. We've got Melbourne, which is in Victoria which seems to enjoy being locked down and people are quite compliant down there. They always wear their masks even if they don't have to. And then you have Sydney, where I'm from, and Sydney siders do not like being locked down. So, for instance, they ditch public transport, not because they are frightened of the virus, because they don't want to have to wear masks. So there's a lot of frustration, a lot of very angry business owners, and there was a big emergency meeting with our treasurer yesterday to discuss urgent uh, ways of, supporting businesses during this pandemic because we no longer have JobKeeper. So everyone's just closed and no way to pay their staff. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. We'll be getting into that. And I, I do the same. I avoid absolutely anywhere. I, I have to wear a mask. I just don't go there. And, you know, if that means buying online and accelerating the great reset, <laughs> then so be it sometimes. I, I don't know. Uh -huh. I have a QR code to every location we go in, even if you want to shop for food. So you see all these poor little old ladies there trying to, work out how to sign in with the QR code on their phone. It's a nightmare. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into your article. You know, I, I, I've never heard of you until somehow I found this, this article, which, which was amazing. And the article covers what I've been talking a lot about, the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the numerous pandemic warm-up simulations prior to the declaration uh, of COVID as a public health emergency, the move from COVID to climate change, and the coming uh, cyber polygon or cyber pandemic. Now, e every day I scan through articles that touch on these subjects, and most of them I skip because they don't give me any new info. Uh, but your piece was really well put together and brought all of these topics uh, together in a unique and eloquent way that made perfect sense. I tend to think chronologically so when I look at these issues, I always start with the pandemic simulations. Uh, it's interesting that recently The Guardian brought to light yet another pandemic simulation that the UK ran in 2016 called Exercise Alice, which specifically wargamed the coronavirus. So now we're up to at least seven pandemic simulations, three of which were specifically for coronavirus between 2016 and 2019, right in the run-up to COVID. So I, I don't know if you want to start by commenting uh, you know, more on the pandemic, the lockdowns, or the pandemic simu simulations uh, or somewhere else, but you know, the, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, you didn't see the other 40 pages that was in that article before I cut it back down again. I had to get rid of all of the economic discussions because that's just as frightening and I was going to put that in another article. Uh, the problem when you've got something like the, the World Economic Forum and the bureaucracy 
with plans and engaging things is that they don't hide what they're up to. They publish millions and millions of pages and have infinite seminars. So it's almost like it's hiding in plain sight and nobody can bother to actually read what they're doing. It's not a secret. It's just so much data. And so with my article, what I was trying to do is cut through just the sheer forest information and try and pinpoint a few key things to open up the floor of discussion to people who might not be aware of what's going on or to at least bring them up to speed with the basic level of uh, how things have flown from uh, the climate change into the COVID pandemic and now into what will be a digital problem later on. And the digital world, I mean, I've worked in IT for my whole life and trying to explain to people how fragile the digital world is is a constant struggle because people see the cloud, they think it's everywhere, it's always on their phone. They don't understand that it's actually all built on real physical hardware that's just as vulnerable as any other physical attribute inside a nation. And so, yeah, that was my purpose was to try and introduce people to it. And uh, it did go viral. That's probably how you found it. And, uh, yeah, I, I read two of Klaus Schwab's mind-numbing books. I don't know if you've read his work before, but he's a terrible, terrible writer. <laughs> and uh, trying to flick through to some of the more alarming discussions that he's having with his books. And, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I was up to. So we've got three apocalypses, as you say, pandemic, uh, um, COVID, climate and the the digital darkness as you call it you know what what actually this friday is the cyber polygon so i'm kind of like <laughs> worried a a, a oh, bit no. so uh -huh. next week it'll be a blackout everywhere there'll be no phones no banking and i'll just have a big i told you so sign stuck in front of my twitter account <laughs> well i i think they'll probably wait maybe until at least late uh J July, um, you know, August to September. And so uh, you, for, for me, the pandemic simulations is, is one of the, the big things, the keys, uh, the fact that there were, I mean, there, there are probably more. I've counted seven of these right in the run up uh, to, to 2020 and three were specifically for coronavirus. So for me, that's like a, a dead giveaway that, you know, however you see the COVID pandemic, that this was planned, you know, they were planning for this and, and practicing and practicing and, you know, whether it was, you know, your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, the problem with the uh, cyber polygon and other events where you dry run a simulation, it's the exact same problem that you have with war games. So if you play physical war games with your natural geopolitical enemies, they get to watch how you react to certain scenarios and don't obviously you don't bring out your secret weapons and, and parade them off to China and be like, hey, this is what we got, mate. You don't do it. The same thing is true with a digital pandemic. If the if you're talking about a, a hacking event or some kind of digital insecurity, then the last thing you do is go and show everybody in the world leaders, hey, this is our problems. Here's what we're going to discuss today. You, you wouldn't do it. Um, and so that's why I find it amusing to watch these world leaders gather up cyber pandemic. You're like, no, no, that you wouldn't do it if you were seriously that was your problem. But what they are doing, which is uh, a deeper layer, which I think most people miss, is when you train world leaders to react to a scenario, which they'd normally be unpredictable, uh, you introduce a predictability that other bureaucracies can then write policies and legislations for and allow for. So if we'd had no pandemic uh, dry runs, we would have seen a very different world emerge from the COVID pandemic because countries would have had to look at their people, listen to what their parliaments were saying, and then come up with their own solutions for each country. And we would have had more Swedens uh, and less of this group mentality we see. But if you train all the world leaders, hey, this is your purpose, and you had little sheets of paper saying, do this, do this, do this, then you're going to get a united response, whether that's good or bad. It'll certainly be at the direction of people running these dry runs. Yeah, see, this is why I like your, your writing. And so, like, 
you kind of uh, explained a bit more of something that ha- hadn't kind of come up in previous conversations that I've had with with guests. So basically, you're saying that by running these uh, drills or simulations, they kind of come up with a rough draft of what to do when the thing happens. And then that gets disseminated, you know, from the international institutions down to the, you know, UN state members. And then they just kind of, like you say, they don't know what to do. So they kind of run with this draft plan. Is that kind of it? Different to being on an airplane and you've got little hostess at the front saying, here are your exits, here and here, wear seatbelts. Well, in a crisis, weak leaders, which is what we've got across the West, is very weak leaders and not very smart ones. They will follow a figure of authority and the United Nations and the World Economic Forum and other bureaucracies have set themselves up as the system of authority and our leaders are following their authoritative commands. So then maybe then if we go to the second uh, apocalypse, you know, I recently had on a Canadian chap, Terry Wolf, whose TikTok videos have been going absolutely uh, viral. He talked about how Davos and company are now attempting to shift us from you know, the global problem of pandemic to climate, but, you know, still, I think they're going to keep the pandemic forever on the uh, the back burner for the rest of, of our lives. You know, every few years, they're going to pop up, oh, you know, here's another uh, epide- epidemiological threat or whatever, but the pandemic lemon cannot be squeezed forever, at least not as, as they've done it in the past year, I think. So could you talk a bit, uh, your view on the shift now from COVID to, to climate? Well, you're quite correct. The socialist-led bureaucracy of some of our world institutions, their goal is to dismantle the idea of national sovereignty and the autonomy of individual nations because it makes it hard to govern and it kind of interferes with their little global socialist dream they've had for the last 100 or so years. So that's they're looking for ways to do that. Now, Western countries are successful. So capitalism was supposed to fall. That was always the great Marxist dream that capitalism would outrun itself and it would collapse, but, of course, it does. And so they've had to come up with ways to nudge a collapse of capitalism. And so they do this by working out ways to make politicians uh, turn their nations into more authoritative uh, nations and also to hand over power from uh, the political process internally into treaties and international agreements which usurp domestic law. Now, Jonathan Sumption in the UK has written a lot about this. It's, a, it's the overreach of international law into, into normal politics. Side point. So these things like the COVID pandemic and climate change are bundles of international treaties and laws which have been then backwriting uh, policies inside like Australia, for instance. Our, our energy uh, portfolios, for instance, are now full of these international treaties and very little of it's actually been agreed upon by the people. Every time they run an election on it, they lose, but they still keep writing the policies. And so what they've worked out is that it's very difficult to make Western nations give up their prosperity and to give up their liberty. So they've had to come up with ways to frighten them into it, and I call that apocalypse politics, when use the human instinct to survive as a way of initiating a permanent war economy on nations. And they tried it with climate change. It didn't really work because the threat was never, you know, it's getting cold. I'm here in Sydney. It's absolutely freezing. There's no, no things melting. It's no global apocalypse. So they tried COVID, and because they had real deaths and it came out of China, which the West is naturally frightened of, it worked a lot better. But even that's wearing off people who don't want to give up their businesses. They don't want to give up their homes. They want their children to be educated. And so that's losing power. And the one that will really get them is a digital apocalypse because unlike the other two, you really can destroy nations if you take out their basic levels of infrastructure. It's like taking out the water, like the water Asian politics that we've got going on. Take out the internet and we've got some serious problems. 
Yeah, before getting to that uh, third uh, apocalypse, just to, to yeah. hang on a bit on the on the global uh, bureaucracy, as you call it, um, I think I had some quotes I wanted to read. Uh, you know, you as you said, you were kind of summarizing this in the article. You said, "quote The purpose of climate change, COVID, and the new hype digital pandemic is to artificially induce, as you said, a permanent war economy um, for these global treaties." Um, and that's what they mean by phrases like build back better, great reset, changing mindsets, redefining capitalism, the fourth industrial revolution, or as I call it, the fourth industrial Reich. Uh, you know, we're all in this together, sustainable future. Um, and you say that climate change is the only narrative capable of achieving mass state land grabs and control of global food uh, production to essential requirements of a global socialist bureaucracy, end quote. So, I mean, basically, is this the age old dream mankind has had since its inception, that of you know total glo global domination? That's what all the emperors of old, you know, Alexander the Great and everyone were, were trying to achieve to dominate the entire planet. You know, a Babylon of sorts, a world empire, a global government, uh, you know. Is that kind of where, where they're headed? Well, the thing with the ancient emperors, with any kind of uh, egotistical warlord, is they are far less trouble than an international bureaucracy. I'll, I'll grant you that, because once they're done conquering, they just pretty much leave the citizenry alone. And uh, people like Alexander the Great and the Roman emperors, they wanted to make money, so they were perfectly happy for citizens to go out and trade and, and be productive. But this global entity is not like that. It's sort of like a parasite that leeches off everything you make. And makes everyone poorer. So this is not so much the conquest desires of individual dictators. It is the old socialist dream of one world order. I mean, it is literally world domination, Bond style. Uh, and you've got Klaus Schwab standing up there like a literal Bond villain. Uh, and uh, they want to be able to take money and write policy for the whole world. And it really does come down to siphoning wealth off productive individuals and moving it into a, a small handful of private corporations and politicians and bureaucrats. Now, the one thing that underpins this, and this comes from the study of English liberty and history, is private property is the basis of freedom and wealth. And so if citizens don't have private property, they have very little recourse against governments. And so these, a lot of these um, global warming and climate change policies relate to pushing people off farmland and agricultural land and locking up national parks. And so the pool of land available to the citizen gets smaller and smaller as they urbanise into cities, whereas the land transfers into the hand of trusts, like we've got our Indigenous trusts here, which are going to hold about, I think it's 40 to 50% of Australia very shortly. And then we've got the uh, government trusts, which own uh, large tracts of national parks and, and public land. So we are the, the free citizens are having less and less... Um, private property, and so we have less and less power against the state. Now, that underpins every society, no matter how advanced you are or how cool you think you are. Or, you know, that's uh, primary. Yeah, you, and we see this, like, with, I talked about this in the past uh, podcast I've had, where they're trying to strip us of our private vehicles, so they're not making gas cars anymore after 2030. They're stripping car lanes. Um, uh, well, on that one, try that. That's a big one for Australia, because you guys, like, not particular, but in, like, small European countries, they can force you to have electric cars. They can take away your cars because everything's in walking distance. But Australia, they tried, they ran the last big election on that one. And they want us to all have e-cars and all these different taxes. And we're like, do you know how big Australia is? Like, it's about, you know, nine days to the other side of the country. We can't do it on an e-car. It's not going to work. So there was a huge backlash toward that. And um, we're not uptaking electric vehicles no matter how much you push us. Yeah. And, uh, and also as well, like Biden just uh, said he's going to 
you know, mark off 30% of, of the U.S. Uh, as you were saying, what, what they were talking about in Australia, they're going to like, save 30% of uh, U.S. land for, I guess, conservation or, or, or whatever. So we, this, we see this trend pushing forward of private vehicles. And Spain, I don't know if you've heard that, just quite shocking now. Spain is now talking about a law where they can force anyone now to do anything. I guess work for free, uh, be drafted into the military, and even expropriate uh, property. Uh, which is insane. Like they could just expropriate property now. Well, look what they do with the property. So they say, or they take the property under the idea of it's it's the environment we're protecting, we're saving the planet, right? It's all about saving the world. But if you look at what's happened in England, now I am a, a ambassador for the constitutional monarchy in Australia. So I am on board with the concept of constitutional monarchies. But if you look at the actual um the way that the public land is now being treated, they've got uh, the royal family to use all of the waters outside the UK and many of the national parks there as wind turbine batteries, uh, which the profits, of course, go to the big companies that are at the UN and part of the global warming climate crisis, you know, money-making operations. So they abscond land that was public and then use it to make money off their renewable technology. And so it comes, always comes back down to somebody's making profit on this. It is not philanthropic. Yeah, and we also see what they're doing in the U.S. So as they're bankrupting farmers and, and businesses, they're having to sell off their land. And you know, Bill Gates and all these people are are, are buying it up. So our chunk of the pie keeps getting uh, smaller. So maybe going well, now, uh -huh. they tax me for theoretical goats on my property. So they tax us for everything. So they, the way that the Australian farmers get taxed for their land is absolutely ridiculous. We pay so much out and we get no services. I've still got a dirt road, but I'm supposed to have an e-car. That's why I moved to somewhere like Mexico where the you know property taxes and stuff are dirt cheap, but I'm sure they're going to be coming after us uh, at some point. Um, so this week, uh, so as I said, uh, at the end of this week is um, the cyber pandemic simulation, cyber polygon. NATO ran a cyber simulation in April, I think. And I think uh, as well as the U.S. military ran uh, another simulation uh, as well. And as we've mentioned before, you know, this, this syndicate, as, as I'll call them, they ran the coronavirus pandemic simulation event 201 in October 2019. And so just two to three months later was the real thing. So as we were talking about before, I, I'm betting that starting late July, August, September, end of 2021, start of 2022, we're going to start seeing, seeing some severe internet and infrastructure failures. In fact, just yesterday, a big bank in Turkey went down for more than 24 hours, which is the longest that, that that's ever happened uh, in Turkey to a bank. And there's an excellent researcher on Twitter with the handle uh, CyberAttack2020 who pointed out that the European Systemic uh, Cyber Group has run scenarios on, quote, the permanent destruction of account balance information at a large multinational bank, end quote. So basically, our, our bank accounts could be wiped out with no no copies, you know, they can just wipe out our entire uh, savings. And so, you know, uh, the COVID dictatorship has forever destroyed lives and people's ability to, to provide for themselves. And, you know, I'm afraid that, as, as you mentioned before, this digital darkness is really going to hurt us. It's like they're punching us when we're down. And so, you know, how do you see going forward, you know, after Friday, the cyber polygon passes, you know, what do you foresee the things that the trends that we might see going forward? Well, one of the things that prompted me to actually write this article, because I've had it sitting around for a while and I thought, no, I, I really should get around and actually write it, was a couple of weeks ago, Australia had a run of 
digital problems with its banking industry. Uh, I think you guys saw some of it where the where um, websites like Netflix and Amazon and uh, big international sites all went down. We also lost our banking sector, so all of our major banks went down. It was twice in a week. And people started to think to themselves, well, I, because we've gone to an almost cashless society down here, they actually tried to pass regulations to limit our cash payment values here. Um, people are heavily reliant on it. And even during the COVID, they've got regulations where most stores now won't accept cash. And so when the banks go down, suddenly you can't purchase anything. People start to think to themselves, wow, that's that could be a problem. But as always, it, you know, it comes back up online, everyone just moves on with their lives and doesn't think about what that actually means. And uh, with the banking problem, there's not as much security in your accounts as people think there is. As I said, they're all really just, they've all consolidated their servers into third-party large corporations. So when I was starting out in uh, software, most companies, even like the shoe company I used to work for, they bought their own servers. Everyone had um, infrastructure that they'd purchased and it was it was decentralized, right? We used to manage people's servers. And now people just rent service space on Amazon or AWS. And uh, so when one party goes down, lots of fundamental services go down. So there's no uh, uh, sort of protection from the crowd and different opinions. It's one, it's like having a hive of one queen you can take down and kill everyone. Same thing. And uh, with that, people don't realise how significant it is. So I don't think it was Canada. I don't, I don't have it in my article there, but one of the Canadian politicians leaked conversations from within their parliament about um, Canada toying with the idea of erasing people's debt in exchange for property if anything was to happen to the banking sector. It was a big story, I think, a year or so ago. That's the thing. If the banks go down, there will have to be a deal struck to placate the very angry masses about maybe we'll erase your debt, but we'll we'll sort of sort things out. And there's a whole other economic conversation going on, debt bubbles and, uh, and green bond problems and this new economic bubbles forming that it would suit a lot of people to crash the global economy with a bit of a digital accident. That's funny, that point you just mentioned. So I was chatting with one, one of my listeners uh, on my Telegram channel because uh, I posted that news story about the Turkish bank uh, and the cyber pandemic, you know, being early, it's two days before the cyber polygon. And I was saying that this would actually serve the elites. And, and the, the listener was saying, well, well, no, then they would also wipe people's debts. But I think for them, that's a small price to pay because if, okay, uh, our savings get wiped, but so do our debts. Um, what's going to happen? We're going to go full on into the cashless society. They're, they're talking about these the central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And so once they get us onto the CBDC digital platform, they've got us. The, the, there's no escape. That's what I tried to explain because I didn't, this is not an economic article I said that you've read. I, I tried to keep it digital. But the whole point of them acquiring assets like property and mining uh, interests and uh, gold and energy infrastructure it's because they don't need money. So if they wipe the cash economy out, they still hold the physical possessions, the, the physical value of the assets, whereas you don't. And so if they were to reset, they would actually probably tip out on top. Now, in that one, I do mention briefly that during the Y2K event where everyone panicked about you know, an, an apocalypse and we all were dressed up in glitter and went down the Harbour Bridge and basically strapped firework to our bridge. That's how we celebrated our panic. Uh, people were trying very hard to avoid it. There was no benefit in the Y2K event coming around. But this time, a lot of powerful people do stand to benefit from a digital disaster. And so we don't have uh, as much protection from the market trying to stop it happening. 
if that so, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. And to look then into our crystal balls beyond, you know, in the aftermath of cyber polygon and whenever the cyber pandemic happens, you know, I was just reading, for example, just this week they announced, you know, Windows 11 is just around the corner, I think uh, in two years, less than two years, 2023. And Microsoft has said Windows 11 will require absolutely front-facing webcams. So a lot of people are going to have to, and only uh, two special kinds of processors, like the what is it called? The Intel i8 Coffee Lake uh, and another processor. So if your computer doesn't have the webcam and the processor, you have to get a new uh, laptop or device. And you know now we're seeing things not where where banks are requiring geolocation to be turned on uh, to access your bank account. Uh, governments are now requiring uh, the registry of biometrics to to use your SIM mobile card. And so for me, it seems like one of the goals after the cyber pandemic is to have a very much more controlled internet experience where we won't be able to log on like we are now. Um, you know, what's your vision of the world uh, after the cyber polygon if the masters of the universe get their way? Well, it must have been four or five years ago. I haven't checked the date now. But I do remember seeing that Microsoft was toying around with the idea of, by the way, if you hear any drilling, it's because I've got builders here. Um, Microsoft was toying around with the idea of you rent their software now instead of download. So no more disks, you actually download their software onto your computer. And they were saying, hey, if you write something they disagree with, then they can suspend your your Microsoft Word session, which for a writer, you'd be sitting there going, ah, what do you mean you can suspend my service if you don't like what I'm writing? Uh, And that was the first sort of warning that things were going on the wrong track with the way corporations were starting to interfere with political discussions amongst people instead of just being a service that they sell you. Um, so that was the first time I noticed it. Um, as far as the future goes, I know that we're talking about uh, how bureaucracy and digital authoritarians will be used to track people, but I actually think it'll be more simple than that. I like, <laughs> Sorry, that, I didn't explain that very well. Uh, what they're trying to do is they tried to coerce with COVID, they tried to coerce with climate change, and they see a digital pandemic as the way to finally force democracies and free citizens to give up their freedom, right? A China-style social crisis. But I reckon we'll actually fall into a global hot geoconflict first, and that our real apocalypse will actually simply be someone like China having a go at the servers to cause disruption to the West. So I think our problems are actually going to be physical, even though we're all panicking about um, digital authoritarianism. Like we should worry about both, but my bet, I was to, to press money on it, I would say it's going to be a physical problem. Yeah, that, that was related to my next question. So, you know, my view, I, my views have been evolving like everyone's, which which we should, you know, presented with new information, we should be, be changing our, our uh, opinions. Um, I personally don't see any political leaders or countries really opposed to this great reset uh, in earnest. All, uh, um, you know, all key institutions and corporations are signed on, it seems, some point to uh, Putin. No, I think you're or, or, totally right there. I think you're completely right. There's no resistance from any of our leaders. It's not a political point yet. And so until it becomes a point of politics, they won't care. Right. So, yeah, like I'm... I'm um, this cyber polygon uh, is having a lot of Russian, um, uh, what is it, the, the Russian spare bank, the prime minister of Russia is, is involved. And um, I'm further convinced that it seems the only squabble Russia and China have regarding the Great Reset is that their sh- share of the pie is too small, perhaps. So um, would that be then reason for, for the conflict you're, you're discussing? 
But the geopolitics in Asia there is extremely complicated because you've got China and Russia wanting to be leaders of the world, basically. But uh, then you've got India sitting underneath them, and India is basically the size of China, and they are not on board with a world led by either Russia or China. Um, but then you've got also China controlling some of the major geopolitical hinges against India, like their water politics and, and their Belt and Road projects, et cetera, et cetera. But the interesting player is Russia because Russia has a special relationship with India. And Russia also knows that a world run by the West and the US, they can deal with, they can do business with, and the US isn't going to come there and take over Russia or whatever. They know what the world looks like. But a world run by China and communist authoritarianism that's been cuddling up to the Islamic world and the religious authoritarianism there, which is run by dictators, etc. That's a world that I'm not convinced that Russia really wants to empower in earnest. And so I'm, I'm not sure that the way that the world conflict has been pegged out is what's going to happen. Because I think if push comes to shove, Russia will actually hold back from, from the switch with China because China doesn't have borders or limits. And once they're done with the West, they'll go after China, uh, go after Russia. So um, if a geopolitical comes, uh, conflict comes through, I think they'll go after the undersea, the undersea cables or some kind of disruptive event like a server house in order to give themselves advantage in a conflict like Taiwan, for instance. Um, yeah, I, I've, def be I've, I've definitely seen um, views, uh, as you just mentioned, and it's possible, like we've seen in previous uh, world wars uh, in history, countries switch sides and so i'm not ruling anything out you know it's 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 we're, we're in the fog here trying to make sense of what, what's going on uh i wanted to get also perhaps your comments on politicians uh and it seems in all countries when i listen to for example my, my croatian representatives or the canadian governors or uh you know i'm here in mexico or the mexican uh or um politicians or the Asians, and we mentioned before, all their speech and prescriptions are exactly, exactly the same. And I personally can't believe that they, they are uh, generally uh, incompetent. As you said, you know, well, maybe some of them are, but for me, it seems that they must know really what's going on and, and, and what they are doing. And I think they're lying through their teeth. Perhaps some are blackmailed or, or, or threatened, but um, it, it, I'd say most seem content to think of themselves as part of the elite godhood and ha happy to e execute these sinister uh, global plans. You say in uh, your most recent article, I think, quote, leaders quite enjoy giving daily press conferences to remind everyone how important they are, end quote, and that, quote, Western leaders are trying out COVID socialism and getting addicted to it, end quote. So, you know, what are your thoughts in general about our politicians carrying out these these programs and whether you're seeing in australia or elsewhere any hope or re resistance pushback oh uh, well the first rule of politicians is they love to be important they, they need to be needed and australian politicians is not like the us or even the uk australians don't pay any attention to their politicians except in a very short period of time around the election we would rather never see and never hear from our politicians they're not celebrities um it, you know when I was growing up, we almost never discussed politics. We'd elect a prime minister and he'd, he'd sock off and do his job around the country. It wasn't a sideshow. It wasn't a theatre production. Not at all. And now all of our health ministers and all of our minor premiers, they are loving giving all these long four-hour press conferences to the Australian public and being on demand 24-7. They love it. They don't want it to end ever because they're still being paid. But I miss the time when our politicians, the biggest scandal was the honey trapping that Asia used to do where they'd go off, you know, do naughty things in up in Asia and then come back and 
that was the level of corruption he had to worry about. Now we've got politicians who are being promised international importance, not even fame. So they love going to the UN and because we're a smaller country, they love being like, oh, we're at this conference, we're at this thing, we're, we're mixing with all this wealth and celebrity. They can't help it. It's the trappings of the red carpet. But when you talk about them not being smart, I have to say the more politicians I meet and speak with at length, the more I'm convinced that they're actually not very bright. A lot of them, it's the bureaucracy that runs what they're up to and they are just figureheads for what they're told to say. And they are genuinely stupid. I find it so hard to believe they're part of a conspiracy given what I've seen them say when they're behind closed doors. I, I think if there is a conspiracy, it's definitely up in other nations that our Australian politicians are more or less following along. Um, but oh, it's just uh, so many about politicians. The internet's difficult. I mean, for an economic thing, sure, they're far more likely to be involved in international collaborations. But most of our politicians think the internet starts and begins at their Facebook page, and that's about as far as they get for understanding the digital environment. So that's why, as you said, the Polygon event's so dangerous for them because they don't know how to handle a digital scenario. And so if they're told to do something, they're just going to do exactly what they are told to do in one of these dry runs. Yeah, they can't even free speech. They don't even understand platform law for, for social media companies. So they don't understand a digital apocalypse. Yeah, I would agree with you that politicians are, are, are m many are not very intelligent. Although I, I guess my point would be then that I think after a while, they would kind of realize, you know, you know, after six months into the pandemic, 12 months, looking at the, the case-demic and locking down, they kind of realize, you know, what we're doing is... <laughs> It's not making any sense. So what's really going on? Uh, let me let me clarify that. So they may not understand it, but if they work out how to make money or power or, or gain power out of it, they will use that without ever understanding it properly. But here's a case in point. I mean, I got suspended from Twitter yesterday for 10 hours because I asked a question about COVID. Now, our government doesn't care that citizens are being suspended from Twitter. The chief health officer of Melbourne blocked me for questioning his health advice. So we've got our politicians blocking citizens on social media, digital platforms who are supposed to be giving us access to health advice. So much for the free speech. <laughs> um, to, to get your thoughts maybe on first looking at the worst case scenario and then, you know, looking um, whether you're, you're optimistic or not. Um, I think you wrote a piece for the, the good, good sauce, this other website that, that you have about the UK turning itself uh, I guess, into, into a hell. Um, it seems like, as I mentioned before, all the world's politicians are out to, to kill us or destroy us. You know, a governor in Mexico recently said that if a business doesn't follow COVID protocols, they will be permanently shut down. As I mentioned before, in Spain, they're already talking about expropriating uh, property. Um, you've already mentioned and written about that the goal of Build Back Better is to destroy private business and private property. Uh, I've been reading articles where in some places like New Zealand or Australia, that people are getting kicked out of McDonald's because their phones can't scan the QR codes. Um, in the US, they're talking about going door to door to push experimental injections. Uh, a friend in Kazakhstan just informed me that you will no longer be able to work full time anywhere if you are not uh, inoculated. And so, you know, it's really kind of starting to feel like we're entering into some kind of apocalyptic end game. You know, how far down, down this road do you feel we might go? How bad might it get? Oh, I'll tell you why I'm more worried about the geopolitical threat to digital security because the first threat, which is digital authoritarianism, 
I seriously believe that they that the bureaucracy has underestimated the Western spirit, which is coming out of the old English liberty. I mean, these people have clearly never picked up a history book because in the end you cannot constrain anybody of, of European, particularly English descent, because it just it never works. We refuse to. We'll go along with things for a while because we're generally law-abiding citizens. That's part of our culture is we don't like to tear apart our government if we don't have to. We would rather just them reform themselves and try to get them to do it on their own. But if push comes to shove, Europeans are some of the most resilient to tyranny and the most prepared to completely dismantle their systems if they have to. And we're already seeing freedom marches. We're already seeing, like even in Australia, vocal opposition and on the street opposition, open defiance of these medical mandates. And every time the police crack down on a defiant, it doesn't play well at all. So I wrote a piece for Rebel News last week um, about a poor pensioner who was slammed against a police van, not wearing a mask at a health food store out in the at our cultural area, like nowhere near an outbreak in a place there's never been a COVID case. And people watch this heavy hand of policing and go, you know what, I think maybe you're on the wrong track. And I reckon that world leaders are seeing that they're losing their grip on society and that COVID isn't enough for people to give over to digital authoritarianism. And the harder they push, I think the more obvious it will become to politicians that that is not going to be the way forward. Um, every every move, like they've just talked about uh, in a meeting yesterday in Australia about allowing businesses access to vaccination information of their employees. Now, that didn't go down with the unions. It didn't go down with the citizens. We don't want centralised data. Um, we don't want to have be controlled. We want our QR, QR codes gone. We don't want to keep checking into businesses. It's not going to stick. So I have... I can see it falling apart and shaking apart. It's not going to happen. Whereas you have to ask, what do geopolitics want? And there's a lot of motivation for a geopolitical threat to actually bring down our technological systems because uh, the goal is solid and they've already said they want things like Taiwan, they want to invade. Well, they are real reasons to do it and we're not prepared to handle it. If, so that's why we're about that. What, what what scenario would you see? I mean, would that that would be would that be basically World War Three? You know, would, would that involve a nuclear exchange, more biological? You know, uh, biological warfare. Uh, what, what's your thought there? Well, every generation loves to think that they've evolved beyond war. Always um, at the beginning, just before the outbreak of World War One, some of the great writers were saying that you know now that we're a heavily integrated world and we've got all this production and manufacturing, uh, it's too integrated. We're never going to go to war. And then we had two of the biggest wars in human history off the back of that. Whenever you get giant civilizations shifting power bases, you always get conflict. It is inevitable, particularly if you've got a, a, an expansionist communist power who knows that they have to continue to expand or they will internally collapse. And Xi Jinping's got a lot of internal problems. And um, when they are financially uh, dependent upon gaining resources. Um, otherwise, there's just not enough economics in China to support the people. So there is going to be a conflict there one way or another. It's inevitable. I know people like to say, oh, World War III is never going to happen. It will. Um, it just depends on how severe it will actually be. And so in the case of a global conflict, you can bet your sweet life that they're going to go after the most vulnerable part of their opposition, which will be Western information technology. I mean, they were still letting China make the guided chips and missiles only two years ago. So we've had to 
you know, decouple ourselves and start protecting ourselves digitally from a conflict. And the U.S. government is aware of that. I, I would agree with your assessment. I think um, peace is the anomaly and, and war is the default, you know, human nature. I've interviewed, you probably know, Ricardo Bossi from Australia, and he's, he said war is, is coming as well. Gregory Copliet, he's an Australian, who also, I think, supports uh, constitutional uh, monarchy. He's been on my show a few times, the head of a defense studies institute. And they all agree that, you know, war is coming. I think it's inevitable. The question is when and what, it, what it's going to look like. Um, I guess we're just going to have to grab some popcorn. And <laughs> that's how we that's how we organize ourselves. We may not like it, but that is the constant of story of humanity. All right. Any any final thoughts uh, Any or any other points, topics you want to cover or any final thoughts for us? Uh, only that I'm glad you contacted me because I wasn't aware of your platform either. And uh, you guys run a great show, uh, a lot of interesting content. I'm going to be following you closely in the future. Not stalking, just following your content, particularly as we run up to the side of the Polygon and see what else you guys have to say about that. All right. It's, it's, well, it, it's not guys. It's just a guy. It's just me. It's a skeleton crew, a one man show. I do everything. And so, uh, yeah. And, and, and I, hopefully I'm going to be expanding this year now that I'll be working full time on the podcast. So listeners, uh, stay tuned and, and help me out with that. Um, where are the great becoming omnipresent? You look like more than one person. <laughs> I, I guess that's a good, you know, tactic you know <laughs> the, 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 oh that, that's a classical you know war strategy my uncle fought in the yugoslav war he was one of the first um to to um, and the and the border with serbia vukovar he was one of the first uh volunteers to defend uh, vukovar and they said that at the time there were only a few dozen croats versus more than a thousand serbs but the serbs the, the croats did tactics to make it seem like there were a thousand Croats when, when there were only a few dozen. So that, that allowed them to hold off Vukovar for a while from the Serbs because they, they didn't know the real well, I, I was going to present a future article, so I'll give you a sneak pre, uh, preview. Uh, doesn't matter how large your opponent is, they're only as good as their infrastructure. And while the West might have vulnerable digital infrastructure, places like China have vulnerable water infrastructure. And so there's no certain outcomes in any kind of future global conflict. All right. Yeah, water is becoming a big topic now. Um, where are the best places for people to find you online? I'll, I'll include them in the description. Uh, so Twitter is my primary form of uh, shouting at the universe. Uh, I have my blog where I post uh, all of my updates. So wherever I write, I always come back and post on the blog, which is also linked there. I've got some merch if you guys want to wear uh, some hilarious uh, protesting style merchandise. All the proceeds go to helping me. Like you, I'm an independent writer. So um uh, anyone who wants to support me is welcome to. I use it to buy myself coffee and pay the rent. Um, and uh, yes, you can follow me on those two. Oh, I got Facebook too as well. All right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not posting anymore to my podcast Facebook because they've restricted it, so nobody sees it. So it's uh, a waste of time. And, uh, no and yeah, and, and hopefully I'll I'll start um, getting some of my, some merch out eventually uh, as well. All right, Alexandra Marshall. Uh, as I again, everyone follow her ex excellent work on Twitter on the articles she writes for the Spectator in Australia. Her website, uh, Ellie Melly and GoodSouth.News. Thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.